Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Good Speed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm Michael Fling, an artistic associate here at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by my not-so-invisible girl, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's other artistic associate and resident dramaturg. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. That is an excellent intro. I was wondering what you would do for this one, and um, I am very pleased. Thank you. You know, I decided to not say pill popping. I decided to not say Supergirl because I was like, that doesn't really work. Um, and you're certainly not my psychopharmacologist. <laughs> so that would be a violation of many professional relationships. <laughs> so, Annika, why don't you remind us of the clue that you gave us about which show we'll be putting in the spotlight this episode? Yes, indeed. So the clue was that this show featured a musical number about Costco, which, as far as we know, was the only show to do that. And frankly, it it did not make it to its Broadway run, but it's there and preserved on the Internet. And that show would be Next to Normal with book and lyrics by Brian Yorkie and music by Tom Kitts and a Pulitzer Prize winning musical nonetheless, which we will we will get into. Um, it also is worth noting, um, before we get any further, that there is kind of a major spoiler in Next Normal that we can't avoid uh, in talking about it. So if you really don't like spoilers and you really don't uh, and you want to go listen to Next Normal or read it, um, you can buy a copy of the script. You know, it's available. Like, go do that and then come back because um, there is a pretty major spoiler that we just can't ignore in talking about it. So fair warning. Or- yeah, or go see it somewhere if someone's doing a production because it is a great show. I have to say, it is, it's a phenomenal show to actually watch. I, I didn't actually like the show until I saw the show, and that was when I was like, oh, my God, the show's brilliant and amazing. But it doesn't uh, – that that kind of – I don't want to say it's theatricality, but it's, it's, it's storytelling and the way it goes about it is so much more effective in person than it is just on an album and or reading it. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a special show. I think so. If it's if it's near you, go see it. I don't think it's done in high schools, but wow, but can some, you imagine? I'm sure though. some high school somewhere has <laughs> to have. Oh my, oh my. So that means it's time for the speed test. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Where I do my best to summarize the plot of Next Normal in under one minute. So, Annika, do you have a minute on the clock? I do indeed. Are you ready? Yes. I think this one's going to be tricky, but let's do it. All right. Paxil, Valium, go. So, um, you have this family who lives in their nice little suburban home, uh, led by Diana, the mom, who uh, is definitely suffering some from bipolar disorder. Um, but you don't really know that at the beginning because you think that she's living this happy life with her, uh, with her son, Gabe, who like comes in late and, uh, her daughter, Natalie and her husband, um, you come to find out that her son, Gabe has actually died, um, 16 years ago and she's been hallucinating him, this, uh, hallucinating his existence for a very long time. Um, and, uh, so it's about her, uh, journey with all of the, um, medications that she's been on, 
Uh, she eventually dumps medication um, and wants to go back to a normal existence, but of course has a mental break and then starts some psychotherapy. Uh, eventually she gets into electroshock therapy, uh, which kind of erases her memory of a lot of things that have happened. And basically uh, her home and family uh, start to crumble around her. <laughs> Everything kind of goes to shit. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I'm not, I did not make it under a minute, but uh, essentially the the world kind of crumbles around her and she ends up leaving her husband um and uh it's left on a kind of optimistic note when she kind of seems to bid goodbye to the hallucination of her son that she has been living with um but yeah that's that's the very general plot yes yes and also the subplots of natalie her daughter who's like a kind of ignored uh overachiever who then starts a relationship with Henry, the lovable stoner, and becomes uh, goes down a very slippery slope very quickly of drug use and partying and all sorts of stuff, but um, kind of gets herself back on track also. Sort of a parallel story to Diana's story. And that brings us to Why God Why. Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the show's big idea, what the authors are trying to say, and what idea governs the show. Um, so this one is tough for me um, because I feel like I say this every time, but it's tough because there's obviously a lot going on, and it's absolutely a study of like the American family, a contemporary American family, and what what the the lives of quiet desperation of like suburbia. There is like this kind of everything's okay on the surface and yet everything is absolutely not okay. That is kind of the, the thing that I think is revealed in the show. But I feel like this show is a little bit of meditation on trauma and response to trauma um, and response to like, and the kind of ever evolving nature of that, that you never, you never really get past it. It's just something you deal with. Um, and I, that's certainly true in the case of Diana. Um, and then in terms of the rest of the characters of the family, particularly, um, obviously we see it in Natalie's subplot, even in the case of how Dan responds to Diana and his, how he deals with the premature loss of their son, I think is, and the differences in how they, how they have, um, dealt with that, I think are, are certainly a response to trauma and even Henry and how he responds to kind of Natalie's, uh, journey and implosion, I think is really, um, and I mean, we could talk about codependency, but like, he really is the like hero who ends up helping her a lot when there isn't a ton of reason for him to do that in terms of like, he, you know, he obviously just deeply cares about her. That's all fine and dandy, but it's not like they have this like really deep relationship that we, that has like years long history. Like he's just kind of an interesting little guy who likes her and wants to anyway. So I, I feel like it is a study in that on a certain level as an idea that connects all of the characters. Um, but Annika, what would you say is um, the why here? I mean, I think this one's a little bit easier for me. Um, to me, this is a show that I think has elements of the message that we talk about a lot in a lot of different musicals, which is connect. Um, that's certainly one to kind of pay attention to the people around you, but also um I th to me, the real message of this show is that you have to work through it, whatever it is. You cannot, you cannot move forward by 
ignoring or pretending it's not happening or just kind of magically trying to fix things that are painful, things that are difficult, things that are um, uncomfortable. You have to have to face them and you have to try to grapple with them um, in order to live a, a full life and to, to move forward. So I think that kind of takes different shapes based on different characters, but that's, that's really the the takeaway that I have. And, and um, sometimes that's really not an easy process. And sometimes that means that things happen that are not really fair. Um, but that's how you got to do it. So Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Next to Normal. We can never go back to before. Well, it's always hard to do, uh, the history of a new show, especially a new show that's original, which this show really is. So instead of talking about other pieces of theater that have dealt with mental illness or some of the other topics I thought I would talk about, um, I'm just going to give you a little tiny snippet about Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkie, the writing team who wrote this, who has written many other shows subsequently. Um, Tom Kitt, shout out, very nice man, the best, so talented and wonderful. Um, and they have actually a really charming story as to how they met and started working together. So, so Tom Kitt, who is the uber talented and very kind and nice uh, composer of the duo, um, was born in Long Island, raised in Westchester. And he didn't really grow up as a theater person necessarily. He studied classical piano and he went to Interlochen for classical piano. And he did some theater in school, but he went to Columbia as an econ major and sort of had secret dreams of being a singer songwriter. Um, and he was kind of not acknowledging those secret dreams until this one fateful day. And I just, I love stories like this. Um, at Columbia, there was going to be a variety show on alumni weekend, but the guy who was supposed to be writing music um, had gone home. And side note, that guy was Eric Garcetti, who later became the mayor of Los Angeles. So uh, this story worked out for everybody involved, frankly. Um, so he was gone and nobody was there to write the music. And a student working on that show had heard from someone she knew that Tom Kitt, who was this guy who was in the acapella group, might be able to help. So this girl knocked on Tom Kitt's door to ask if he might be able to help. And he did. And from that moment, a composer was born because he realized that this was his calling and a collaboration was born because it just so happened that the lyricist for the variety show was Brian Yorkie, a writer from the West Coast who was also at Columbia. And a marriage was officially born because the girl who had knocked on Tom Kitt's door to ask him if he was available was Rita Pietropinto, who uh, is now married to Tom Kitt and they have three kids. So man, talk about one knock on your door changing your life. Um, Truly, wow! Right, so, and that and that started everything. I mean, from there, Tom Kent and Brian Yorkie went to uh, BMI together, and they were. I mean, it was just like fate. So all of those fates converged on this one moment, and I thought that was such a cool story to share. And that brings us to putting it together, bit by bit, putting it together, piece by piece. Only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So after being admitted to the BMI Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop in 1998, the pair were searching for a story idea when Yorkie saw a story on the news about a woman undergoing electroshock therapy, something he didn't know still happened. 
and apparently was predominantly prescribed by male doctors to female patients in this story, which I thought was interesting. Um, and so this germ of an idea turned into a 10 minute musical with the title Feeling Electric, which they decided um, after its success there to turn it into a longer piece about a manic depressive woman going through this experience and the impact that that had on her family. So over the next few years, they continue to work on this piece, which at one point expanded to almost four hours in length. Um, so from 10 minutes to four hours, they certainly had a lot of material, lots of things that they um, were attempting to do, include, including lots of commentary on the medical industry and and how some of these things are, are dealt with. Um, so still under the title of Feeling Electric, the show had its first reading in 2002, about four years later at the Village Theater outside of Seattle. And it then has a bit of a windy path through lots of um, playing lots of clubs for individual performances, which I thought was interesting and definitely something that is still in the ether of New York musical theater development. But it ends up in the New York Musical Theater Festival um, in a production uh, at Nymph, commonly referred to as Nymph, uh, where producer David Stone saw the production and was interested in helping support the project and its further development. Um, and at this point, the show still contained a lot of that commentary like we talked about. And um, and Stone reacted with, um, you know, it seemed like it had a lot of clever observations, um, but he kind of probed the authors and saying, was the show about science and ideas or about people? And they decided to answer that question and went and worked on refining the story, focusing on the human element of this family in crisis. At which point, Michael Greif, who we talked about with our Rent episode joined the project and agreed that they really needed to focus the show on that and really look at this family's pain and loss um, rather than critiquing the medical establishment. So they toiled away at rewrites and eventually opened Off-Broadway at Second Stage Theater in 2008 under a new title, Next to Normal. Uh, at that point, Alice Ripley had been involved in the development for a while as the matriarch, Diana, and Brian D'Arcy James um, joined the show playing Dan, her well-meaning husband, with Jennifer Damiano as Natalie, Adam Chandler Barat as Henry, and Aaron Tveit as their dead son, Gabe. And the show got quite mixed reviews while it was off Broadway and second stage, which really quashed the dreams of transferring straight to Broadway. But the team decided to continue to work on the show cutting Diana's breakdown song in the Costco and having it take place at home, her breakdown take place at home, um, and cutting what had been their title song, Feeling Electric, uh, which I think they described as a very heartbreaking cut because they really loved that number. But um, one of the tough cuts that happens, sometimes you have to cut the things that you love most. So with this retooled version ready for production, they went to Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. later that same year where they um, got fantastic reviews um, after all that work to focus the show and tell, tell the story of the family. And they transferred to Broadway on the backs of those reviews in the spring of 2009. Got even more raves uh, in, in the reviews in the press and earned 11 Tony nominations, of course, including Best Musical, um, which it did not win, um, but it did win three Tonys for Best Score, Best Orchestrations, and Best Actress for Alice Ripley. Um, it entirely recouped its $4 million capitalization, which seems like such a quaint capitalization these days, and won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2010 after controversially not being among the finalists. It ended up winning the prize. And I think it's worth mentioning that there have been a few high-profile uh, regional productions as well as a tour that did star Alice Ripley after the Broadway run. 
Um, and there has been a rumored revival uh, that is kind of circling around uh, New York and uh, was at the Kennedy Center in 2020 starring Rachel Bay Jones. Uh, I think that production has a little bit of rumor about transferring to New York about it, but uh, nothing official as of this moment. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside Superboy and the Invisible Girl? What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. Okay, so let's dive into Superboy and the Invisible Girl. And that is Natalie's big number after Henry has come over for dinner and via a birthday cake for Gabe, we have realized in the audience that Gabe is not a real character. He is a figment of Diana's imagination as he died when he was a baby. And all the other characters have realized that Diana is in the middle of a big break in her mental health, basically, because she's seeing him as though he's real. Um, So this is the song that happens when Natalie goes upstairs with Henry. and is just sifting through this this information. Um, and I, I love this song so much. I, I think I remember Tom Kitt saying that it was one of the first songs that they wrote or a very early song in the show. And it's just, it captures something so beautiful in terms of um, being a very important part of Natalie's character journey, because like any good musical theater song, um, the change from before this song and after this song is pretty significant. Before this song, Natalie is someone who is rejecting drugs, is an overachiever. Um, She's really not doing anything dangerous. And by the end of this song, she will uh, basically smoke pot for the first time and then descend into this very quick slippery slope to taking whatever drug she can and staying out all night. So that is all in this song. And it's a great song for that, but it's also a great song because I think it authentically sounds like what a teenager says, which is something that's very true of a lot of this show. It's hard for adult writers to capture teenage speak without it sounding either like a parody or like they are hopelessly uncool and trying to sound cool, which of course is the worst possible thing. But the teenagers in this show really sound like teenagers to me. And this is definitely an example of that. So let us dive in. All right, so that's obviously not not that much of that song, but I wanted to just dive in from the beginning because there's a lot here. So we get this kind of driving rock sound, but it's interesting. It's not really angry, which a song here could be. Uh, Natalie has a lot of anger. She's um, dealing with a lot of things. This is obviously embarrassing for her. Henry's there. Um, Also, we've just learned this massive thing about her mother and how much she idolizes this this baby who died before Natalie even knew him. Um, So there could be rage here. This could be a really angry teenager song, but that's not what it is. And we know that right from the get-go because we get this sort of frustration, um, but also this kind of driving like circular thing. You know, we get this, this, these chords and then they just circle back around to this dun dun like it's like a heartbeat it's like an agitation and a frustration 
Um, but also there's something about this that is so stuck, right? This isn't a new situation for her. She's in the middle of this frustration and agitation, but these aren't necessarily new thoughts. She's, she's churning through some feelings here. And of course we get the very first phrase um, is the title of the song and the repeated phrase in the song, um, Superboy and the Invisible Girl, which again, like I said, teenagers talk like this, you know, this is comic book language. This is superhero language. That's pretty, um, pretty commonly something that teenagers will do. But I also love that, um, that she's using a metaphor here. She could say to Henry, I hate this. I feel terrible. This is what I feel. But I think for Natalie, whose solution to things tends to be a little bit more cerebral, um, her solution is to do something that that separates the situation from herself a little bit. It's a it's a metaphor. Um, it's a superhero metaphor. You know, she's she's keeping it a little bit at arm's distance from herself. And I think over the course of the song, we're going to see it get a little bit more personal. But to start with, she's still in a sort of intellectual place with this, even though we we can hear from the music that she's upset about it. And of course, it's the perfect image, Superboy, which gets its higher, loftier notes and the invisible girl, which kind of falls off that height, just like Gabe and Natalie, like he's the one flying in the air. He's the perfect guy. He's Superman. And she's the one who's sort of trying to hold on to some attention. Uh, the invisible girl, the one you can't even see. Son of steel and daughter of air. He's a hero, a lover, a prince. She's not there. I just love this lyric because it works both in terms of meaning and in terms of scansion containing meaning. So she's describing Superboy and he gets all these words tumbling together, a hero, a lover, a prince. Um, and you just get the sense that she could just keep going. There are just lots of words to describe how wonderful he is. And then there's a beat and all Natalie gets is she's not there. And it sounds like it's easy to come up with praise for Gabe. Um, but the very idea of saying something about her is an afterthought. Um, and such an excellent use of a pause and simplicity to really drive the meaning of that lyric home. You know, the, the compression of his words and then the pause and the simplicity of her, she's not there. Like, what can you say about her? She's just not there. There's nothing. Superboy and the Invisible Girl Everything a kid ought to be Um, I love that she doesn't specify in this verse who who is everything a kid ought to be, right? It could describe either of them, but obviously we know who it is. And she doesn't have to really specify because she's placing him as the central figure um, and herself always as an afterthought, even in her own song about her feelings, right? Um, he's the one who gets the narrative. He's the one who gets the attention. She has to kind of fight herself in there, um, even when it is her moment and her songs and her feelings. But we have something interesting here, which is that she's shifted finally from saying uh, she, so the abstract invisible girl who she's talking about, which we obviously know is her, but she now has owned it and said me, then there's me. And again, it's that wonderful afterthought in the same way as she's not there. Like, oh, yeah, then there's me, you know, like there's not, there's not information there necessarily, but it's sort of like, oh, also, also she is there. Um, and that's just again and again in these lyrics. It's great. 
something different. Um, after she sort of switched from she to me, um, she's making herself and her wants the center here. And we, it sounds different. She's flying free. We get this lovely stretched out phrase, I wish I could fly. And this lovely, we get this kind of accompaniment by this solo violin line, which just is flying around. It feels more personal. It feels like now she's actually able to talk about herself free from the comparison perpetually to this other person. Um, but I also love the line, uh, and magically appear and disappear. Uh, because it doesn't really scan particularly well. It's an awkward line. And to me, this sounds like it's because she's still thinking about Gabe here. She has this moment of kind of freeing herself from comparison. And then she's thinking about Gabe, who does magically appear and disappear. That's kind of the problem here. And so that's complicated for her. It kind of drags her back down into an awkward place rather than her own desires, which are just allowed to fly free. And then we get this other thing where the second line after I wish I could fly is I'd, I'd fly far away from here, which does scan perfectly. It scans a lot better than magically appear and disappear. Um, and that doesn't sound jumbled at all. It sounds like it's the purest, truest thing she said yet. And you get the sad, wistful little kind of melody, which you get the sense is just, this is just a little this is her heart speaking. This is not her intellectualizing. It's not her being clever. It's not her using a metaphor. She just is in so much pain, ultimately living in this house. But then I love that after this too, there are those building chords that just get bigger and bigger and, and, and wider, you know, um, which kind of make it sound like as though she's, even though she's in so much pain thinking of wanting to leave this house, there's also something that sounds very freeing after she says that. Like there's a part of her that knows that that would be freedom, that that would be when her life could kind of begin. Superboy and the invisible girl, he's the one you wish would appear. He's your hero forever, your son. He's not here. I am And now we get something very different. We don't really get to build on that idea of the freedom that might have come with that other thought because Diana has entered the room. So this verse of Natalie's is confronting Diana with what she's saying here. It's not her just talking to Henry about her feelings. She's actually saying, you only care about this, this my brother who's, who's not here and I am here. Um, and you can hear that there's accusation here, there's there's anger, there's pleading, um, but it's also so fair. I mean, she's just laying this out for her mother in such a kind of heartbreakingly simple way. Um, I mean, there's you, you feel for her so much on he's not here, I am here. And with that jump on here, like she's musically kind of screaming for attention, right? She sounds a little bit like the child that she is here because She's been ignored by her mother her entire life in favor of, of an impossible ghost. Um, and then of course, contrasted with that sort of open-hearted plea for attention and just a uh, reminder that, that she is there, um, we get Diana's part, which is such a contrast. Natalie's is all simplicity. Diana's is 100% cliches. 
and even her music sounds like she's kind of putting on an artificially cheery demeanor to say all these things, you know, which is, you are a little pride and joy, our perfect plan. Like it's so false and it's so clearly not true. Although she does say our perfect plan, which later she does refer to how they, they had Natalie to, to make up for the pain of Gabe's death. Um, so there's like a tiny kernel of truth right there, but she doesn't really allow herself to get there. And keep in mind that the Diana who is going to later be much more honest with Natalie, this is not her yet. This is earlier Diana who doesn't really communicate with Natalie with any honesty. Um, and it just is the worst. I mean, it's the worst thing you could say to a girl who is feeling these feelings right now. Um, and I love you as much as I can. It's just a knife to the gut. Um, she's basically confirming everything Natalie is saying. Although ironically enough, I think I love you as much as I can is probably the most honest thing she manages to say in this section. Take a look at the invisible girl. Here she is clear as the day. Please look closely and find her before she fades away. So here we get the verse that is the turning point for Natalie. This one is all about her and she's expressing something so vulnerable and dark. It's really a plea to be seen. And especially it's a plea to be seen before she fades away. This is new uh, that the invisible girl might actually disappear entirely instead of is just kind of perpetually there and perpetually unseen. Um, and I think this verse is where we can pinpoint the shift in her from the overachiever who doesn't take any drugs to the wild child who will do anything to get attention. Um, because she's really in danger here. Something has changed. You know, I think her mother's callousness saying, I love you as much as I can, and refusing to kind of engage honestly with Natalie is what pushes her to to make the choices that she's going to make after this. Um, and I think it's such an interesting uh, use of language here, the idea of disappearing, because obviously the, the primary thing that we think of here is that, you know, she, she's in a tremendous pain. She's a teenager, you know, there's something very sinister about the idea of disappearing. She might, she might not make it, she might do something terrible, you know, but there's also, um, an interesting foreshadowing of the drugs that, that Natalie is going to embrace because, you know, when you are taking that kind of drugs, when you're acting like, like Natalie does, you're trying to disappear a bit. So it could be really either of those things, but either way, it just sounds really um, sad and vulnerable and, and just worrisome. And also I love here that they have this beautiful pizzicato strings, these like plucking of strings as she's singing this, which hasn't been heard anywhere else in the, in the song. And it, it does sound like the sound of something just kind of fading out of existence. So they're keeping this kind of superhero soundscape happening in the song even here. Superboy and the invisible girl, son of steel and daughter of air. He's a hero, a lover, a prince. She's So after this low point, which is all about uh, Natalie herself and does feel a little bit like it's a moment of 
vulnerability that Henry could potentially come into and offer a hand and kind of reach reach into Natalie's pain, basically make it better. Um, he doesn't really get that option because immediately she takes that last note and pulls it up and it becomes bigger and more bombastic and Gabe joins her. And it just kind of feels like at this point that she's lost herself into her own narrative, basically, when Gabe joins her, because Gabe always seems to be present to magnify everybody's worst impulses. I mean, certainly that's true with Diana. Um, that is true with Dan, I think. He, you know, he he's not necessarily a positive figure. He's a figure who comes around to make everything a little bit worse. And it does feel like what he's doing here is taunting her a little bit. It feels like he's singing along with her to kind of drive home the reality of what she's singing. Um, and also kind of provide a sort of perfect illustration that he's just always there, even in her narrative. And she obviously can't see Gabe in the same way that Diana can. So, so his return in this song, I think, just shows that Natalie is in a very, very dark place. Um, and she's going to stay there because she's she's kind of closed off to listening if she's in a place where Gabe is, is accompanying her. Um, and that is dangerous. And of course, it makes perfect sense, I think, that with that kind of renewed energy that Gabe singing with her provides, she's going to end this song and then she's going to reach for the drugs for the first time. Um, so this truly is a turning point for her and just captures her feelings in such a perfect way and in such an honest way. And um, also it's a, just a great song. I mean, it just, it feels like it's full of just enough angst, but also it's so honest. It just, it feels very, very right. Um, so yay, Superboy and the Invisible Girl, well done. And apparently the song is very popular with teenagers. And honestly, I totally get it because man, who hasn't felt like that sometimes, but Natalie has special circumstances. And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues the show faces, both internally and externally. So obviously this show is rife with uh, tough topics, uh, particularly because it's so much about mental health and how it's treated, how it's dealt with, and the, you know, the various treatments, medications, going off your medications, yada, 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 full disclosure, I will say, because I, I like to be open about this. I do have anxiety and depression. Hey, I am medicated for it. Hey. Um, and actually I had seen the show like right before I went on my big like mental health journey. So I will also just say as a caveat that this show did make me feel a lot less crazy than, um, <laughs> I'm not just, I, just, I shouldn't say that that sounds bad. Like I'm not that crazy, but, um, that is to say like, it is a very like Diana's journey. And even just like the song, my psychopharmacologist and I, like it was a very revealing, <laughs> uh, thing as a person who has dealt with that. And I, Anyway, I like to be open about it because I think the stigma is still very real. And like, I, you know, if my journey helps one other person, it's worth it. So uh, seek treatment. Treatment is good. Treatment can help you. It can save your life anyway. But to launch into all of that, uh, I think we have learned a lot about mental health in the 12 years since this show premiered on Broadway and almost like 15 since it 
was first brought into the world as feeling electric. Um, there, there has been quite a lot of, uh, that we've learned about mental health. Um, so, and how it's dealt with. So not everything in this show remains as current as the information we have. And I think that that dovetails really nicely with the, this conversation about, could you do a show like this today? Where does this show stand? Like, obviously it was a, a huge, um, a hugely different kind of musical to run on Broadway, certainly, but even just in the landscape of musical theater, it's doing something very unique. But um, Anika, could you talk a little bit about how you see this show in today's landscape of, of one, just, you know, how much we've learned about the topic in the intervening years since it's premiered, but also just the way that this show goes about telling its story, I think is very it, it is pioneering in a lot of ways, but we've 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 gone a different route, I think, in in the development of shows. So, uh, do you think we, you know, you could do a show like this today, or basically this show today? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question because I know that it was very very important for the writers when they were writing it to try to um, be as accurate as possible with um, the portrayal of mental illness, of bipolar disorder. Um, with some of the issues that they were addressing. And it's interesting because um, as you said in the history, like the, the journey of the show really changed from something that was very critical of like electroshock therapy in its original form to something that was um, a lot more neutral about treatment and prevent presents, I think the good and the bad of, you know, medication and um, these illnesses. And I think that that itself is incredibly important. I mean, if we think of theater as uh, an example of radical empathy, it's sort of, you know, you will never be able to live life in another person's shoes, really, because you're only ever able to look out of your own eyes. But when you go and see a piece of art, you can kind of experience someone else's um, story that way. Um, and I think of, you know, I Miss the Mountains was something that was really striking to me when I saw it because I had never seen that portrayed before that, that idea that someone who is suffering from a mental illness might prefer to feel those feelings rather than just be medicated into blankness. I don't think you usually do see that. I think you often see um, either mental illness as a metaphor, which you see in a lot of different sort of pieces where it's not really about the mental, mental illness. It's sort of using the mental illness as a, chance to tell another story or um, mental illness as a, an obstacle that can be overcome when you, when you are a quote unquote normal. So I think the show is doing tremendous work and in, in terms of like talking about what is and is not normal, that kind of American suburban, suburban ideal of like handsome fam family, everything looks fine, but there's so much more going on. Um, and just, the idea that these topics are difficult, you know, they are tricky. You, you being medicated to the point where you feel nothing does not feel like a good solution. Being unmedicated to the point where you are having psychotic breaks and seeing your dead son is also not great. So I admire that the show lives in this in-between zone where um, the, the takeaway is really that these are very difficult issues to deal with. Um, so that being said, it really is interesting because when I was reading it again, I thought to myself, now we are in a different time in terms of handling sensitive issues in our storytelling. And 
there is a sort of, although there is a sensitivity to the way the story is told and it's next to normal, there's also a sort of brashness in the way that it's told. Um, it doesn't take you by the hand at any point. And I think say to you as an audience member, you know, that, that these are sensitive issues. And if you are going through this, then you might need that, you know, I, you might need this, this kind of experience or it's okay. Or, and I think in, in a lot of the shows that now have come after this show that deal with mental issues like Dear Evan Hansen, there's very much that sense of sort of like reach out to you as the audience and handle things a little bit with kid gloves in terms of suffering and, and um, the issues. And I think, I don't think this show could have existed in the same way if there was that kind of pressure um, to handle those issues quite so sensitively and quite so um, with kid gloves, because I think what par partially what makes the show succeed is that it is unflinching in many ways. And I'm glad that it can be because I, I just I feel that's important. So it is really interesting to think what the reaction would have been if that show was presented today. And I think people would have been a lot more offended by elements of it in a way that um, they weren't at the time. And, you know, I'm glad they weren't really because. Yeah, I know. I was just gonna, I was going to kind of counter that a little bit and say like, I, what made me this encounter, but I think that is why the show succeeds. And yeah. I think it's actually why some contemporary shows that attempt to deal with very complex issues don't succeed in my opinion is because of that. Yeah. And um, I, I don't, cause I, at the risk of like oversimplifying, I don't know what I would say about this as offensive or like, or not. Um, I don't want to say politically correct. I don't want to get into a conversation about political correctness. But I really just, I don't want to get into that conversation because I don't really think it's accurate. Yeah. But like, I do think that it is, you're right in that it's presenting a very, uh, there are no like soft edges here. There's nothing like it is, it drills down to the impact of this on every single person in the story. Um, and I, I think because it deals with that in such a raw and open uh, way and in such a, it, it allows those, it allows the audience to fill in the complexities with, with what they want. Not that they're like stock characters. I don't mean that, but like there is it because it is so specific and because it's not afraid of its specificity. Uh, I think it becomes more universal in a way that I think like I, I don't think the show necessarily endorses any of the behavior of any of the characters. Like I think, or some of the actions that they take, do you know what I mean? Either subliminally or not. I think there is like, I, I use Dear Evan Hansen as the counterpoint because I, I think that there's a lot of overlap and that's the next kind of point, yeah. but the next discussion point. But I think because of, because of that, I, I am incredibly, empathetic and sympathetic to every character in this story. And I can, I see the drama presented as ships passing in the night or people like I'm here, you're here and we're just missing each other. Like, I think because it presents that in such an organic way or in the nature of the way they tell the story, like all those 
characters and moments are given space and and I want to say I wish more shows in a in this current environment would actually deal with a subject matter like Next Normal does and not apologize on behalf of it, but instead present an un, an unflinching. Yeah. I think I'm using your word unflinching, but the unflinching reality of what this yeah. is and attack it from um, from all the various points of view. Because I, in some ways, it relates to. I think about this a lot. With I use Aaron Sorkin as an example a lot, but like what I admire about Aaron Sorkin as a writer is like he very clearly has a point of view. Anyone who sees anything Aaron Sorkin ever does, like you know what Aaron Sorkin wants you to take away. There's always a monologue where the character is going to the lead character is going to explain exactly why they're doing exactly everything they're doing. And it's a rah, rah, everything, you know, like liberalism. Um, But like, (laughs) but then on the flip side of it and like the West wing, which is so obviously a love letter to like all those kinds of things, you always get a very um, aggressive attack on that. That is also very rooted in truth and rooted in a very like intellectually sound argument as to why that might not be the right argument. And you can also get behind that. And I, I say that in he he is to me an obvious example of uh, approaching writing ferociously from both sides and really attacking an idea from both sides of it and then letting the chips fall where they may. And I think Next Normal does a really good job of, uh, I feel deeply for every single character, uh, at least of the living, um, of the living family, those, the da- dad, mom, daughter, I I feel for each one of them and the push and pull of what each of them needs and what each of them is not getting. And I understand why Diana may not be able to connect with Natalie as much as I don't like that. And I don't accept that it's not acceptable. I understand that Natalie's frustrated. Like I, there is like this, the, the interplay of all of those things is very, I think very well presented in that I think you're able to, I at least am able to digest all of the realities while still feeling bad for every single one of them and really wanting them to find a solution that works for all of them into a new, a new kind of normal. Um, Yeah. Perhaps being next to normal, i.e. the title. Um, Yeah. And it's interesting because I was reading about um, the portrayal I was reading some critiques about the portrayal of mental illness. And there was one article that was in um, a scientific journal. I think it was uh, disability studies quarterly. Um, and it was a, a, a guy who was going to a coffee bar outside the theater in, I think San Francisco um, to interview people who were going to see the show. And it was very clear that in this piece, he had some issues with the idea that the show was, not representing the entirety of bipolar disorder and was present, you know, that they had to be attractive people and was basically not fully representing what it means to be bipolar or um, what it means to have a mental illness. And, and um, he had some frustrations with this, although some of them, I was a little bit like, this sounds like a science brain trying to analyze art. Um, But what was funny about the piece was that, he keeps interviewing people who are seeing the show. That's why he's kind of outside and he's trying to talk to people who are going, you know, coming out for intermission or after the show. And all of them are saying like, you know, I have, I was depressed and I heard this song on the radio and I just, I, it really stuck with me. And I, I was like, wow, that person is, is capturing my feelings. And so they came to see the show. So like, he's trying to find these kind of 
people who are having problems with how the show represents mental illness. And all he's finding are people who were so thrilled to see mental illness portrayed on the stage that they were, they seem to have no problem with the idea that like, of course, it's not a complete portrayal of what it means to be bipolar, but to explore these issues in the way that the show does allows space for people to see themselves represented, you know? And, and I feel like that's something that we've kind of stepped away from in, in this day and age, we've kind of, we've gone further down the path that a piece of art has to portray a sensitive issue in its entirety. You know, it has to show all of the pieces and all of the sensitivities around it. And everybody's experience has to be represented on that stage. When in reality, I think the role of art is simply to provide something that can be a template that you can see yourselves in. And I think that's what Next to Normal does really beautifully. So that would be something that would potentially shift the show in a different direction now if you did it, because you would have to be more specific about what the treatments were and more specific about what happens when, you know, um, she attempts suicide and, you know, all of those things. And I, I love your point. I mean, I think you're totally right about, uh, about the nuance of all the characters. I mean, every one of these characters is a jerk to someone in their life um, at some point and, and also great at some point, you know, and I think I always, I'm interested in Dan's trajectory because I feel like, he comes across yes. so, so sympathetic and so sweet and so devoted to his family and so committed to his, to his wife's treatment and help. And, and he's trying so hard. And I remember being so devastated when I first saw the show that he, you know, he, he's trying so hard and in, you would think that that would mean that he should win, you know, and he doesn't because his beloved wife leaves, but ultimately you also realize that he has so much that he hasn't been dealing with either that right. not really like the innocent, perfect man who's there for her nonstop. It's like, he's also not dealing with his own trauma and he's not dealing with the fact that this is a real thing that happened to them that they have to deal with. And so, you know, nobody is free from having bad things happen to them and bad things that they're choosing not to realize. To hop onto that, like it goes back, I think while you used my buzzword for the why God, why I'm going to then like support what you were saying and say like, yeah, our hero is the one who, even though it's not, uh, it's obviously put her through hell and a half. She has been attempting to deal with this pain and this trauma. And this is how she's dealing yeah. with it. And she goes, she's been on that journey for how many years for right. 16 years. And, uh, and that's, we had, uh, at the end of the day, by the time we get to the end and Gabe finally appears to Dan, like we, we start to see that, oh, actually, like, while this was awful for her for 16 years, we're proud that she's gone. We're proud and happy that she has dealt with it because she's now come out the other side. There seems to be a new, a new chapter awaiting her, whereas he's just now starting to. And that yeah. in a lot of ways, like, while it is also a, like, a gut punch because we don't want to watch someone else go through what she has gone through. It also is, it is saying that like, yeah, this is why she's our hero because she has gone through this and he hasn't, even yeah. though he's acted honorably, he's been a good husband. He's cared. Yeah. He's, he's done. I, I think in many ways, exactly what you would hope a loving partner would do. Were you to be in 
the situation that she is in. Like, right. uh, you know, he's done that and he has been good, but yet he has still not dealt with. And that's ultimately why he is not, he's not the story. Uh, right. It's, you know what I mean? And I yeah. think that that it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. And also the caveat to say that like, even the way it um, looks at bipolar disorder, if you're bipolar, it doesn't mean that you're hallucinating people to be clear. No, that is like bipolar with like there, that is like an added on thing of yes. that happens for, for some people who have bipolar disorder, That is not the like by and large, everyone who has it just to like well, put that out there. And also actually I, I did read that, that that is something that has changed diagnostically since the show came out that they call yes. it a bipolar disorder with depressive issues, I think, or with psychotic, with psychotic features. Well, that's, but that's what it is now, but that's not what they say in the script. Yes. Oh, the show describes her as bipolar depressive with delusional episodes. Exactly. So that's what the show calls it. But subsequently they would now call it with psychotic because of, because of her seeing her son. So it's interesting too. That's such a changing field that, you know, diagnoses can change all the time. I mean, it also, I mean, to, to leap onto that, it's a, it's an interesting conversation about, um, I think we can look at it very, um, objectively because it's, it's a science thing. It's not based in any kind of racial stereotypes or whatnot, but it is an interesting, it, there's a parallel here between how certain older shows deal with race and gender in a way that we would not deal with in 2021. And as we have the, I feel like that's the ongoing conversation we're kind of always having in this section, which is this show feels old and, you know, whatever, like, how do you make it feel contemporary and where's the line and da, 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 da. Um, but I think in the case of this show, like, I think it's a great argument for, we can only make the art that we're capable of making in the moment that we're making it. Yeah. And like, you know, how are they to know that in 10 years, it, yeah. some of these diagnoses would be out of date. And I don't think that that means next normal shouldn't be performed. It just, you have to understand, you know, like, yeah. I, I think it, it is, it is of its. It is a distinct look in time that hopefully has. Yeah. You know, again, I I think most people wouldn't necessarily know that that has updated in the last ten years. But like, right. that, those are the I think the kinds of conversations we should be having is is how do we how do we yeah take the the essence and the core and and move it forward. Yeah, and I think also that's partially true because in the show, there's so little judgment or value assigned to both the illness and the treatment, you know, like the show is not saying electroshock therapy will save you. And it's not saying electroshock therapy will ruin you. And it's not saying medication will save you. And it's not saying medication will ruin you. And it's not saying that you will have a terrible life if you are bipolar and you are choosing to uh, medicate or if you aren't like, I think it's because it is so nuanced and you, you don't come away from that show feeling like you've been sold a message in that way of like, yeah. well, this is how you treat this. And now we know, you know, that that is something that makes it more timeless because I think what the, what the show presents, which is kind of like medication is imperfect, but it's sort of the best we have plus therapy, plus dealing with these things, plus all the complicated business of being human is something that is still true. You know, whether the medication is different or the treatment is different. It feels like it doesn't feel like it was written at a very specific time in terms of like, well, thank God we have Valium now because everything's solved, you know, the wonder cure or, you know, the electroshock therapy, which is so bad or so good. It all, it's all on a really interestingly nuanced 
um, scale. And it's ultimately not about that. It's ultimately about feeling feelings and being human, um, which is obviously always going to be true. So in that vein, um, I, I think I, I want to get into our next topic, which I, I think may provide for some interesting interesting discussion and thought, which is I do feel like Next Normal is at the forefront of a genre of musical I'm just going to call emotionally complex musicals, um, which are like the, the category of show that is like Next Normal, Fun Home, Dear Van Hansen, these intensely emotional pieces of drama that at some... At, in some ways feel much more at home in like the American play than the American musical, right? Um, I think because they live in and trade in such um, deep emotions of, of the individuals on stage and subsequently the audience members, there is a tendency for audiences to be incredibly connected or uh, be their, their emotions are very tapped into in a way that I think is different from musicals we've seen previously. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm really trying to like think if there are any shows previous to Next to Normal that I would put in this category of, of emotionally complex musicals. But I guess the, the question is centrally, when you are dealing in such heightened emotion that is so, you know, obviously family, all three of those shows share a like parent child relationship that is complicated by mental health and and this state of the family and whatnot i guess it's it would it's very easy i think to um critique any one of those shows as emotionally manipulative um of the audience in saying that you are driven and pointed toward feeling a certain way um and I guess I just I, I, I want to explore that idea and see and see where you think on that. I've I full disclosure, I feel that way. I feel very manipulated by Dear Evan Hansen when I see it. Um and I really shut down to that. Flip side of that, Fun Home is one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had in the theater, and I thought it was amazing. And a dear, dear, dear friend, first thing he said when he walked out of it was I felt emotionally manipulated by that and I was not into it. And I was really shocked by that and so and i so i say all that like next normal i don't know that people have that reaction to in the same way as those two other shows but annika i guess would you add any other shows to that to that list of this new genre i'm creating in this world and two what is your response to audiences feeling emotionally manipulated in in musical theater um i mean i think the short answer is if you feel emotionally manipulated then the show is failing in some way um, for you specifically, probably, but um, on the whole, because usually I think the feeling of that feeling of I am being manipulated means that you are not, you have not connected enough to the story to feel like you are engaged with the story and going along on the journey that it is uh, bringing you on. Um, I, if you if a, if a show is successful, then you should feel like you are just simply going on that journey with the show. And if you're feeling emotions, then those are successful emotions to be feeling because the story is successfully conveying the emotions that you um, feel when you're feeling those things. So um, to me, the shows that I can think of that are emotionally manipulative are the ones that are simply utilizing um, emotional flashpoints in stories that haven't earned them. 
So the one that pops to my mind is um, Kinky Boots, which when I saw it, I just felt that there were so many moments in that show for me that they had not really told a story yet. They were simply kind of filling in the larger, uh, oh, well, here, you know, kind of what's going to happen here. Um, like, like the Billy Porter drag queen character singing to her father at the old folks home where I was like, what, you know, this is just like a mawkish scenario, but I don't know this. It doesn't, this is not earned by the story or the main character who has been completely supportive of this drag queen coming to the factory and changing things up for the entire story. Some suddenly acting in a homophobic manner at the end of the show so that you can have him kind of be redeemed in like the la you know, from like 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock in the show. And I was like, this, I don't, I'm not going on this journey with you because you haven't brought me here. You've just, you're just, you just want to get to the convenient ending where it's like, yay, we're, we've resolved all the issues by sort of, falsely making an issue and then resolving it. So that's what I can, that's what I would say to that. I mean, in terms of fun home, I think fun home is to me was not emotionally manipulative at all. I thought it was very honest in its portrayal of very complex emotions. Um, it's interesting that you frame it that way in terms of this contemporary genre. I, I think what we were talking about definitely does impose on this conversation because of what we said in terms of that there is like, an overt thing happening now where it feels like you are obligated to dive into these issues fully if you are going to touch on them at all in any shows. And sometimes that does mean that more time and weight is spent in those moments than you might necessarily need, which can feel like you are making a point and then remaking the point and then making the point again and then going too hard. And it's funny because when the Pulitzer Prize was given to Next to Normal, the statement that was made with this prize was that Next to Normal was a powerful rock musical that grapples with mental illness in a suburban family family, and expands the scope of subject matter for musicals. And when I came across that, I was like, huh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because I do think like Next to Normal dove into the reality of what it is to live with a mental illness in a way that was more honest. And I mean, since unflinching is our buzz buzzword this episode, let's just use that again, unflinching. <laughs> but, but I'm also like, you know, I mean, musicals have been dealing with mental health, mental health issues um, for a long time. I mean, Lady in the Dark was 19. Lady in the Dark. I was going to say Lady in the Dark. Yeah. And obviously that was kind of different. That was a sort of exploration of psychology and lots of other things. So it wasn't kind of the, the raw honesty of this, but it's hard for me to really go through the musical theater canon and not see explorations of intense psychological experiences beautifully portrayed, um, whether or not they are given the name of mental illness or psychological disorders. But, you know, I think, I mean, in our Oklahoma episode, looking at Judd and um, lonely room, you know, I think that's a really interesting portrait of a specific kind of brain. I mean, I think Carousel um, certainly goes into a little bit of the psychology without necessarily naming it of what it means to be in love with someone who is abusive to you, you know, and well, and talk about an emotionally complex musical. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's an emotionally complex musical. Right. But I, but I think the difference is that now we live in a time where we have the names for these things and many people are in therapy and talking about your 
Um, psychological well-being is something that we do and we're very comfortable with, even though there's still lots of stigmas, obviously. But um, that's not a conversation that was being had in the same way then. So, so I feel like to say that Next to Normal and some of these contemporary musicals are doing something that those musicals didn't do is not totally fair. It's just that they are doing those older musicals used to do it without overtly saying to the audience, and this is this, you know, or, you know, if you had Carousel now, you would have to kind of have a moment where it was like, but also this is really, really bad, just to make sure that that was made really clear. Um, we kind of have come to a place where Carousel actually has that moment, but it's okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it does. I mean, like, well, no, but I mean, it's a good point. Like, but you know, like, to like, I think what we've lost is the space for uh, the audience to make those conclusions on their own. We're in a place where we really kind of feel like we have to say to the audience, FYI, this is good. You are fine. Everything's okay. Or this behavior is bad. We do not condone it blah, 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 blah. And sometimes when you're getting that much of an overt message from a show, it feels like emotional manipulation because you are not being told a story anymore. You're just being told a message. And that's that goes into a different part of your brain. So, Well, and I, I think you make a great point in that like musical theater has always explored these topics. I mean, let's look at like follies let's look at Sondheim yeah. like it's always yeah. been like like there are certainly I I think of follies immediately but like yeah you've got like four characters who are going through a mental breakdown which 100 uh, it ultimately like opens up a, a, the euphoric world of the follies and whatnot but like it isn't and, and you're right I think you're also right to point out that like yeah um, in some ways like musical theater is the game of emotional manipulation it's always trying to get an audience to a certain point to applaud or to like emotional manipulation doesn't have to be, Oh, we want to make you cry. It can also be like, I want to, I want you to feel happy. I want you to feel like, you know, euphoric. I want you to clap along to the song. Like I, I do think like in some ways it's, it's not fair to these shows to, I mean, I know that maybe that's a false argument to be making that like to equate those things, but like, I do think like, yeah, there are absolutely big boppy musicals that emotionally manipulate you into hooping and hollering at the end, whether it's, so I saw like Tina last night and like, yeah, that show emotionally manipulates us into standing at the very last moment of the show. So that then we're standing the whole time for this, then like 10 minute concert that happens of Adrian Warren being brilliant as Tina Turner and the amazing cat fighter. Like, yeah, that is on some level emotional manipulation. Like you have got, you have, figured out how to get everyone into a place that that is then their reaction, which like, or at least a lot of people now in the case of other shows that, you know, do that clumsily or whatever, or it's just about more nuanced and difficult topics. It's not just about like, yay, Tina Turner, like that is a different, a different thing. It feels a little more invasive. It feels a little bit more, um, uh, you know, preying on people's, emotions and their own traumas and and whatnot but i i think you're also right to say that if you earn it or you have gone on the journey and it feels genuinely earned that we're getting to a certain point then it's different and i i, I think that's a fair and wise valid point to make yeah i mean i just think i guess to me, the term emotional like manipulation it makes me think of like if i tell you something sad that happened to me and you're sad then I haven't manipulated you necessarily because I've just simply shared something 
that's sad and you're feeling empathy for me. But if I tell you that story with the express purpose of making you feel sad, then I have manipulated you and that's dishonest. So I feel like a story that is told for the right reasons and with a kind of honesty should not in itself be manipulated manipulative or be perceived as manipulative it's it's really when it's becoming dishonest in its presentation that um you're getting there and yeah i mean i i you know musicals have always been full of spectacle that definitely can get, get the res, result that people want specifically the happy ending sort of feeling when you're walking out and it doesn't even matter what you've experienced because you're like wee fun right you know but I think musicals are also have, have also been very good at authentic storytelling that really just, you know, gets you in the gut. Music is the universal language. Tis. And that means it's time for our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where Annika and I share some of our favorite things about Next to Normal. So Annika, who is your favorite character in Next to Normal? Oh, I just love Henry so much. I've always loved Henry. I think he's That's such a sweet precious. character. I know. I just can't help it. He's, he is precious. And I don't know what this says about my psychology, but I'm going to say Gabe is my favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one, I just think the, the, the concept of that being how he manifests is very interesting. I think there's like a, I think there's absolutely a sexuality about him that is really fascinating oh, that sure. we didn't, unpa- we haven't unpacked in another segment, but I think like that, that interplay is fascinating to me. And uh, yeah, I, I'm so I, I'm going to say like, just anytime he's on stage, I'm very interested in what's happening and I'm so engrossed in all of it. And I think like, whether that's the character or just the device as a, as a part of Diana, or just um, the part of Diana that's being explored at that moment, I'm, I'm going to say that Gabe is my favorite. I mean, I think he's a fascinating character, truly. And and so, I mean, just 100% charisma, and it's hard not to love those characters. Uh, what's your favorite song in Next to Normal? Um, oh, there's so many bangers in the score, but uh, I love Just Another Day. I think it is... A perfect example. First of all, it's just a really fun song that I always, always enjoy listening to. And it captures the kind of like drive of just like people doing the same thing every day and going about their business, but also like a little bit of the darkness in the sense that like, this is maybe not sustainable. But also, I think it's a really, really brilliant opening number. I think it's a brilliant contemporary opening number. You're not, you're not really setting up much about where they are, you know, like it's not doing a ton of like wide storytelling that you associate sometimes with opening numbers, but man, is it doing a lot of work setting up the dynamic of this family, the suburbanness of it all. Like it just is so good and I like it a lot. And that is my favorite. I think that's a great answer and I totally agree. It just immediately immerses you into yeah. the story. It doesn't, it doesn't do a lot of hand holding. It just is. And I think it's, it's a really, I would agree, it's a fantastic example of, of that. Yeah, what about you? Uh, well, if you are going to sense a theme, I love I'm Alive. Listen, what a banger. Like, I love, love, love to pump that song in my car. And, like, when I'm driving, it's a great driving song. It's, I just, I, it's a, I mean, it's, maybe it makes it sound, me sound like the basic, uh, the basic 
teenager that I was when Next Normal came out or whatever that I'm like, I like I'm alive. But listen, no, it's a great song. It's a great song. It's a great song. And I think we have learned from this sort of uh, taped around Halloween episode that you have a thing for sexy ghosts. I, oh, I mean, What's who doesn't? That? Yeah. I yeah, I have my weird my weird psychosis. I get into a sexy ghost. Um, what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about Next Normal? Other than the fact that there's a Costco song that was the cut. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, so my favorite miscellaneous thing, I'm going to cheat and say two things. <laughs> been a while. I actually am too. I actually am too. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> One is I just love the idea of, I think because all of these characters are so rich, um, I really, really feel like this is especially fun as a casting show. Like when you read over the, the casts that did it and, you know, Marin Maisie playing that part on Broadway and Heidi Blickenstaff playing it, you know, and, and Brian Darcy James, who I got to see off Broadway, who was just wonderful. And all these people playing these different parts I just wish I could go back in time and see all of them. And there are a lot of performers that I would love to see do it in the future. And so that's something that I, I think it's really a gift to actors and um, it would be a joy to see so many people do this show. Um, so that's one of them. But the more specific one is I really, I think this is a beautifully written book. Um, I think Brian Yorkie has done a really great job um, with this. I think there's so many things that, uh, could not have worked nearly as well as they do. And they are so beautifully balanced um, in the story. And the moment that always really kills me is when Diana has lost her memory and they're trying to kind of bring her back into the memories. And uh, they're going through all the things that, all the crazy things that Diana has done at Natalie's school. And she's in the pool at the meet and all these things. And there's just that moment where Diana says to her, wow, you've had a really sucky life. And it's it's kind of a joke in the moment, but I think it's a it's representative of this show's book, which actually does have a lot of humor, even with the darkness, that that moment in the middle of this scene, which is so dark and also kind of harrowing because she's, you know, they don't know if she's going to come back to full mental power after having lost her memory. And she, you know, can't even remember her daughter. I think that moment is actually sort of a turning point for Natalie. And it's to be able to drop a moment like that in the middle of a scene sort of casually and also have it register as exactly what that character needs to hear to be able to kind of move forward is a very, very tricky, dramatic thing to do. You have to really trust that that moment will land and, and be what you need it to be. And I think it does. So I really, really just love that, that line and, you know, in a show full of things I love. That one's, that one's a, a winner for me. My, so my miscellaneous favorite thing uh, about an external is going to, is in the middle of it. It's going to be good, which um, I sing this to myself all the time, which is when Diana is like going around and like cleaning up or whatever. And uh, we're going to have to bleed part of this out, but when she, it's going to be great, it's going to be fucking great. <laughs> I sing that to myself all the time, all the time, Excellent choice. all the time. And the other thing, I, which again will come as no surprise based on my other, you know, other favorite things, but I think just the the kind of twist nature of the reveal of Gabe, I think is really, really amazing and something that 
I, you know, I can't think of a ton of moments in musicals that are like that, like M night Shyamalan kind of twist or just like, Oh, we've completely fooled you into thinking one thing versus another. We talked, we talked about it with cabaret, like cabaret lives in that space a little bit. There are uh, certainly other musicals that have, but I think just the nature of that surprise and that revelation is part of what makes the show so unique and so special is that like, I, I, you don't see it coming at all. Like it is really, really expertly done, I think. And part of the secret sauce that I think helps you if you, I think you were already on the train, but I think it makes you think that it's the best train ride ever, which sustains you for the next, like, you know, hour and a half. So I, I'm, I'm just going to call that out as a, as a brilliant piece of storytelling. And um, I would say theatricality, but just, just great storytelling. Yeah. I am so glad you said that. And now I'm jealous that I didn't have that one too, because you are 100% correct. That is a brilliant, brilliant moment and harrowing uh, if you do not know what's going to happen. And when you read the script later, you're like, oh my God, this is so brilliant because he really is only interacting with Diana, but you do not notice that because they're all in the number together. Ugh, it's so good. So good. So, so good. And that brings us to our penultimate segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So we, this will probably come as a shock to no one who has listened to this entire episode, but I think it is worth talking about the, um, the, the Pulitzer prize um, committee quote and kind of the new territory that this opens up for Broadway in terms of storytelling, at least overtly telling um, this kind of a story. I, I think that is certainly part of what lives in this show's, in this show's corner. But I, I also am going to make the point that I think musically it's incredibly influential to the next generation of, of musical theater artists in a way that we have certainly talked about with other shows, like Spring Awakening is hugely influential in that like kind of rock sound. But I think this is the uh, this is like the fully integrated form of that in the sense that it is all coming from story, it's all character based. It's not just emotionality of the moments in the way that it is with Spring Awakening. And I think that the the kind of high belt style that we get from the ladies and even like Aaron debate in the rock tenor kind of, I mean, they're all just like singing in the rafters. Um, and I think that is a, a very, it's very indicative of where the form is going to go. Certainly for the next decade, I think we're still living in the wake of, of next to normal in terms of uh, musically speaking um, the actual music itself. But Annika, what else would you say is this show's corner? Yeah, I think your point about the music is totally right. I think uh, it proved that you could have music that sounded like this that was just as uh, emotionally and psychologically rich in terms of musical theater storytelling as um, anything that had a more conventional musical theater sound. Um, and I think, I mean, it's funny when I think about Corner of the Sky, the phrase that came to mind is, we can do hard things which is um, something that I just somehow say to myself sometimes about when things are tough and you got to just like, you know what? I'm proud of myself. We can do hard things. Um, And I feel like this show proves that musical theater can do hard things because it really does illuminate um, 
a section of human life that is very difficult, I think, to to dive into with the skill that this show does. And I think, um, I mean, I know personally, um, I Miss the Mountains was something that that really did give me a new perspective onto mental illness and um, that kind of experience. And, you know, I, that is the highest, that is the highest honor that a, that a show can have, I think, which is that it, it actually, if a piece of art can make you understand a piece of life you didn't totally understand before, um, then, then that is, that is the best you can hope for um, that you, you learn and grow from it. So uh, I think for that and, um, and you can certainly see that influence in the shows that has, have come after, which are a little less afraid to dive into those topics. Um, it's, it's really influential and really important. I think it deserves that Pulitzer. Agreed. Agreed. That wraps up our deep dive into Next to Normal. But first, Annika has to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? Where Annika gives us a clue about the next show we'll be putting in the spotlight. So, Annika, what is our clue for the next show we'll be putting in the spotlight? Our next show once featured a gang called the Emeralds. So many things that that could be. Are those characters in the show? Are those people that were originally cast in the show? Is that a group that formed because of the show? So many, so many ways that 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 clue could take us. Is there a hint in the color of emeralds? You'll just have to see for our next episode of In the Spotlight, which, spoiler alert, is a live episode taped live at the Goodspeed Opera House, our very first live show. Yes, real human people involved in the taping of this instead of just our our offices and sweatpants. And I was going to say, ironically, the most high-tech recording that... uh, we will we've done of the podcast or so wow history indeed something is coming something good i'll tell you that much we'll see you next time bye everyone bye everyone This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit goodspeed.org. See you next time.